Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight we find out what toys make up the class of 2022 inductees into the Toy Hall of Fame. They range from one that's been around for thousands of years to a bright idea from the 1960s. We learn how women in Halifax helped win the Second World War. A new book looks into the key role volunteers in that city played in supporting the war effort. On this Louis Riel Day to mark the Métis leader's execution in 1885, we speak with his great-grandniece about his legacy and how his story has often overshadowed a long history of the Métis woven into the very fabric of this country. But first, we dig into a tense encounter between China's president and the Canadian prime minister at the G20 in Bali as it wrapped up today. Xi Jinping could be heard dressing down Justin Trudeau over the content of an earlier meeting between the two men being shared with Canadian media. Who was right? Who was wrong? And where does this lead Canada-China relations? First up tonight, though, let's talk about that game called Diplomacy and a strange incident if you've been to these meetings, as I have, where very little of great fascination goes on. It's all really just for show. But at the G20 today in Bali, China's President Xi Jinping called Prime Minister Trudeau over to him and uh, laid into him, to put it mildly. Uh, Really what he appears to be angry about was that the details of a conversation they'd had on Tuesday had been shared with the media. Um, Through a translator, the Chinese president told Trudeau, everything we discussed has been leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. Here's what she had to say. Everything we discussed is leaked to the paper. That's not appropriate. And that's not how the way the conversation was conducted. That is not the way the conversation was conducted. If it's any solace, the Global Times, which is sort of the mouthpiece of the Communist Party in English in China, has published an article about what was said um, in that conversation. It's much less, uh, it's certainly much less glory, glorious to Canada than, uh, than our version of it was. Um, Trudeau did respond in that conversation, all caught by a pool camera. The pool camera is essentially the one camera that follows a leader around when they're in these kinds of things. You can't have five or six cameras trailing after every leader. It would be chaos. So there's just one. And it happened to catch this conversation because it happened in a public area. It happened where the leaders were gathered as this uh, G20 was wrapping up. So Trudeau responded by saying, we believe in free and open and frank dialogue. And that is what will continue. Here's a bit of what he had to say. If in there Canada, is sincerity on your part, free and open and frank dialogue, and that is what we will continue to have, we will continue to look to work constructively together, but there will be things we will disagree on, and we will have Let's create the conditions first. Let's create the conditions first. So, um, to put this into context, Canada had been left off the dance card here by China. We didn't have an official meeting with Xi Jinping. Others did, uh, President Biden uh, most notably. Uh, but that was a pretty strange event. I, you know, I've been to a lot of these, and that's just something you never see happen. So what to make of it, right? What to make of it? What exactly is going on? One of the most powerful leaders in the world dressing down a fellow leader, uh, someone who is you know, the prime minister of a G7 nation. Uh, personal opinion here, I don't think Justin Trudeau did anything wrong. He would be expected to share the contents of any conversation he had with Xi Jinping. It would have been self-serving. He talked about bringing up uh, interference in elections. He, pro- he brought up North Korea. He brought up a few different um, items that were of Canadian interest. Clearly, Xi Jinping was not happy about this, but it was the tone that was odd. Don't forget, in this conversation, if you're cheering for Xi Jinping here, you have a problem. You have a problem. You may not like Justin Trudeau, but if you're cheering for a Chinese dictator, uh, dressing down a Canadian prime minister for any reason, you have a problem. Anyway, we thought we'd try and figure out exactly what was said and what went on. So we reached out to someone who could... uh, who speaks Mandarin, who also knows this subject very well, and that's Scott Simon. He's a senior fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute and a professor of anthropology and sociology at the University of Ottawa. Thanks for your time. Yep, thank you very much for inviting me. 
Well, this one's been talked about a lot. It is a very rare sight at one of these major meetings, specifically for a Chinese leader to bring someone aside and uh, scold them, essentially. You speak Mandarin. What did you make of the tone? What was she? What was she's tone in there? Was it angry? Was it dismissive? Well, I I think that the tone of that of the of the Chinese was very much like a, a superior addressing an inferior. So it was, it was like a, a teacher speaking to a student about something they were not happy about. Yeah, and that's not often how world leaders speak to each other, is it? No, it's not, and that's that's why I, I'm not convinced that it was intentional. I think that. He was looking for a moment to speak privately with him, and that was probably as private of a moment as he could get. And so that's that's what happened. I I don't think that they were planning on videotaping that. Yeah, I mean, he would have known perhaps that uh, the Canadian Prime Minister in one of those events, specifically in a public forum mm-hmm. like the closing, mm-hmm. would have a pool camera with him at some yeah. point. But you're right. So I'm trying to parse exactly what he said. He certainly felt that the fact that uh, the information had been shared was inappropriate. But he also suggested at one point that that's not what we talked about. And I was wondering what you made of that. Okay, well, I I think that there was some disagreement, I think, about how to summarize what had come up in the meeting that they had. But most of all, I think that he was disappointed that the prime minister had revealed contents of the discussion to the media in what was expected to be an entirely private and confidential discussion. Yeah, I guess because in this case, Canada was not on Xi's diplomatic dance card at the G20. We were not invited for a formal meeting, as others were, like the French president Mm -hmm. and President Biden, uh, the Australian prime minister and so forth. So I guess this was a difference, a difference of expectations, perhaps. Yeah, I think it was. I think that she, in many ways, was pointing out diplomatic protocol to to him and saying that he should keep confidential what happened in that meeting. This was not like the Xi Biden meeting in which they actually had a readout of the of the meeting that was approved by both sides. So this is very different. Often. If the prime minister is to meet with uh, the Chinese president, for instance, there is an expectation amongst the Canadian media, particularly, but I think Canadians in general, that what was talked about will be shared to some extent. We want to yeah. know what he said. You know, there's a lot of things going on in this country right now that have uh, a China focus to them. We want to know what the president of China said to our prime minister. We want to know what he said to him. Yeah. So did, did you see it as a, as, a, as a break in protocol or was this just expectations that were different? I think that the the expectations were were very different. And so from Xi's perspective, it was a break in the protocol. It's very clear that that's how he imagined it to be. He told the prime minister that, you know, it's a question of trust. And he told them that if we can trust one another, then there are lots of things we can talk about. But if not, well, it's difficult to say. And so that was the last sentence that he said that was not translated when he said it's difficult to say. Yeah, tell me about that one, because that was, was sort of left hanging out there. Um, and that sounds ominous. It does sound ominous. I, I, I watched it several times to try to figure that out. And Trudeau didn't wait for the translation to come. He instantly went into his, his spiel that he wanted to give. But it does sound as if she is giving him a, a, real, a real dress down there and saying that, you know, if we can trust one another... Let's have some confidential conversations about things. But if we can't trust in one another, then maybe the two of us won't be working too much in the future. So I think it really is somewhat of a threat there. Realistically, between world leaders, there's supposed to be a, a level of respect, period. You know, you're not really supposed to dress down the Canadian prime minister. I don't care who you are. Uh, right. in, that, in, in that sense, I mean, and she's obviously in a powerful position. He's given himself mm-hmm. a new, you know, a third mandate. He's uh, unchallenged and so forth. It, it's just hard to imagine what he thought he was trying to achieve there other than to dress down the Canadian prime minister in a public forum. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that we expect ever since the foundation of the United Nations, actually, that the countries will come together and their leaders will meet with one another in a spirit of equality and address one another as equals. And it it doesn't matter if you're from the United States or from a tiny island state like Nauru, the world leaders should be addressing one another as equals. And that's something that didn't happen here, that she obviously was addressing Trudeau as if he were a junior um, that simply doesn't have the same attributes that he has as a world leader. And I, I think that is inappropriate. 
the prime minister then, as you put it, put said his spiel, which is essentially, you know, we're going to have these uncomfortable conversations. What did you make of Xi's reaction to the comeback? Well, you know, I, I don't know if Xi actually understood what was being said. I don't know how good his English is. I think his English is better than we think it is. By the way. Okay, well, I think he, so. obvious, he didn't look too impressed and he didn't look very happy. He basically just turned away from this. And, and then Trudeau walked off and looked very disconcerted. You can see it in his body language that it looks almost as if he had difficulty walking away. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's an uncomfortable situation for any world leader to be dressed down by China. Um, but the, the reason we're talking about this, the way because it is just an encounter, right? Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme of things, it's an important encounter because there's a lot on the line these days between China and Canada. Relationships, are, the relation yeah. is strained, and mm-hmm. I think we saw it get more strained today. Yeah, I think you're right that it is a just one encounter among many, but it is a strained one, and it really should make us a bit uncomfortable about what's coming ahead. But it also reveals, I think, quite a bit about Xi Jinping and how he sees his place in the world. And there's been quite a bit said about, you know, China having this concept of tianxia, of under, under, everything under heaven, of somehow seeing themselves having a special place and a leadership role in the world. So it, it seems as if this is a way in which they are, in which Xi is expressing that or embodying that. But it does ignore a lot of history, too. I mean, Canada was quite um, quite supportive of the People's Republic way back when. I know this goes back, but she would know that, too. He would oh, know he that dress, dressing down a Canadian prime minister in public um, is, is, is in some ways disrespecting the history of our relations. And in particular, it's disrespectful of the relationship that Pierre Trudeau had with China. You know, she knows that Trudeau's father is the one who established relations between Canada and the People's Republic of China. He also knows that Canada establishing that relationship is what opened the door for China coming into the United Nations and getting under the Security Council and and signing diplomatic protocols with other countries. He knows all of that history. What now, Scott? Because again, there's a lot of things that Canada wants to bring up with China. We're trying to change um, to some extent with our new Indo-Pacific strategy that we're going to see the details of sooner than later. We're trying to diversify our relationship in Asia away from China a bit. You would think this would be a time that China would try to look to put on a bit of a charm offensive, but clearly not. Yeah, obviously they've not done that. Um, they haven't done the kind of wolf diplomacy that we were starting to get used to. But I, I think that you know, moving forward, that this really underscores the importance of our Indo-Pacific strategy. And I think that it proves many of the points that our leaders have been talking about, you know, like Melanie Jolie at the Monk Institute recently, and and the risks about China. And so it really is proof there um, that China is a risk to Canada and that we should not expect things to go as smoothly as as we've been hoping they would ever since 1970. Yeah. I mean, the Australians did something similar a few years back. They, you know, there was quite a bit of um, pushback against Beijing and some of what they've been up to in Australia. And uh, the Australians were similar, summarily shut out for a while as well, much as we are mm-hmm. at this point. This seems to be China's tactic is to is to sort of embarrass people publicly when they're yeah. not happy with our foreign policy. Right. And I, I think that we should bring up here that, you know, that Australia got in trouble because they asked for some clarity about the origins of COVID-19. And in this case, Trudeau was bringing up the fact that there was Chinese interference in a Canadian election. And this is very serious. I think that Canadians have a right to know what was going on. You know, she should not have been so surprised that this was discussed in the media. Scott Simon, thank you for your Mandarin uh, translation as well and your insight on this. Much appreciated. Thank you. We've been talking about your favorite board games tonight because um, now we're about to talk about the inductees into the 2022 Toy Hall of Fame, none of which, by the way, of the three this year are board games. But I was curious about board games because there are a lot of board games in the Hall of Fame already, they include the obvious ones like checkers and chess. They include very popular ones such as Monopoly, which was uh, inducted way back in 1998, the first year that this was done, as well as Risk, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the Game of Life, 
Um, there are some others in there that I'm forgetting and forgetting as well. I'll go back. Candyland, which is what I'd actually never heard of. Can you imagine that? I don't know why. It was just one of those games. I said, Candyland, what could that be? And it's in the Toy Hall of Fame. And I really didn't know it, which is uh, seemed odd. But if someone else out there knows, maybe I was just one of those gaps. You know, you have those gaps in your knowledge and you just, something's out there that you've never heard of. Um, Twister, of course. Clue, of course, and Risk. Clue was a game I loved. As I used to play Clue by myself, which is, you know, only children are strange creatures. It was ridiculous to play Clue by yourself because, of course, you knew who did it, right? <laughs> but I would still play it by myself just for the fun of going through the game. That's how much I loved Clue as a kid um, as well. Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. Um, yeah. So the Toy Hall of Fame this year, um, there is something that is thousands of years old, which is fascinating. And there is something which was a very bright idea come up that was come up with in the late 60s. Have a listen. Light Bright, the toy that lets you create beautiful pictures with light. Work with colorful pegs that glow with light. Light bulb not included. Make people, animals, things. And with refills, Bugs Bunny or Bozo the Clown. You can make lots of pretty pictures with Light Bright from Hasbro. Oh, I love those commercials. Wow, back in the 70s, that reminds me of Saturday morning in front of the TV. When I was only at, when I was at my grandmother's house, my mom's mom, because they had cable, color, and sugary cereal. Other than that, it was, you know, it wasn't great. <laughs> it was black and white and a, a limited edition, a limited supply of cartoons. But those mornings, those Lightbright commercials, I love. I thought Lightbright was the most amazing thing. So it's the it's in this year. It's inducted along with Masters of the Universe, an 80s one, of course, and the top. The spinning top has also been inducted. It was chosen amongst a whole slew of contenders. People nominate these things, right? They go through them, pick them out. Uh, the ones that didn't get picked this year but made the finals were Bingo, uh, Nerf, the Pinata, Pound Puppies, and the Spirograph. Remember the Spirograph? That was a pretty cool thing, too, if you're more of an analog person like I am. Uh, those are the ones that didn't make it. Good luck to some of them next year. But with more on how this all works, some of the other games that are in there, what makes a classic game, how do they get into the Hall of Fame? Joining me now is Chris Bench. He's the chief curator at the Strong National Museum of Play in Rochester, New York. Thanks for your time. Great to be with you. It's always fascinating to see which inductees uh, make it into the uh, into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> this year's are some very familiar ones, but one of them is as a, about as old as a toy can get, isn't it? It is. Uh, people were playing with this in caves. I am confident. <laughs> so, the, tell me about the top. Why? Why the top this year? And uh, there's a fascinating history also about the top um, as part of its as part of its write up for why it was inducted. You know, of the 12 finalists this year, the top was the one that people kind of gave me a dope slap when they heard that it wasn't already with the other classic toys in the National Toy Hall of Fame. It's been around for more than 5,000 years in cultures all over the world, Europe, Asia, America, North and South America. It has such depth of use in different forms and different materials so much play over the years. It is one of those toys that you could quite literally pull out anywhere in the world and someone would know exactly what to do with it. Except on the U.S. Today show where the hosts tried to play with one last week <laughs> really? and had a total fail. <laughs> I guess people need some reminders. We, we live in two. You can't, I guess you can't spin a top, learn how to spin a top on your phone, right? So that's the problem. Right. Not yet. <laughs> Light Bright is an interesting one. I remember as a child uh, in the 70s, Light Bright to me was sort of, this is pre-video games really, but Light Bright was sort of the, the pinnacle of high tech at a certain time. It really is a fascinating toy. It is. It came out about the same time as the Easy Bake Oven, two light bulb-based toys at the same time. You cooked with the Easy Bake Oven and with the Light Bright, you had sort of backlit glowing pegs that you could turn into all sorts of illustrations. The light bright, what I found interesting in your write-up though, is that the light bright did harken back to a long history of mosaic building and so on. The the concept behind it was, was as old as the hills, so to speak, even though the technology was new at the time. If you think of it also as 
backlighting the same way you do with stained glass with colors and light refracting through that. What I love is if you go on YouTube now, people are using it as a really simple stop motion animation technique. It's basically you're playing with pixels and you can do really elemental kinds of scenes that with stop motion animation gives you a really sort of funky 8-bit effect. It does. Is that part of the what makes a toy worthy of the Hall of Fame is that it does need to have a certain staying power within the culture? I mean, there's so many toys that are that are that are novelties and popular when they're popular, but don't have a long shelf life. But the ones that you pick seem to or that are picked seem to have um, have evolved as well. That's right. And we really require a baseline of a toy that has to be on the market 20 years continuously. So we're envisioning a toy that's been out there so long that kids and their parents could have both grown up playing with it. But many of these have much longer trajectories for them. Yeah. One of them that came out this year was one that's a little uh, past my time, uh, Masters of the Universe. He-Man was, I was already a teen, I guess, by the time that came out. What I found really interesting about that one was that uh, unlike so many other toys that are built around other products like comic books or films, this was actually a toy that launched the whole franchise. Mattel was brilliant, and they swooped in in a perfect moment when regulations on what children could have presented to them on especially Saturday morning cartoons had gotten loosened up in the United States, and they saw an opportunity to essentially build a story, and they had already built a backstory around He-Man, the whole Masters of the Universe constellation of characters. So they basically fleshed that out. Uh, It received criticism at the time that it was basically a feature-length ad for their products, but they worked around that. And, you know, Masters of the Universe and He-Man are back on TV now in streaming formats. It seems remarkable. You're right. At the time, it was heavily criticized. Although if you look at something like uh, the Smurfs or Stumpf, as they were called in French, it was essentially the same kind of concept where where you had this this toy line that then became these books. I guess it might have been the other way around, but it wasn't unheard of. It just hadn't been seen much. Right. And it was done in depth and it became really one of the operating modes of that period in the 1980s with other characters like Rainbow Bright and Strawberry Shortcake and the Care Bears. They were all part of that kind of dynamic in the marketplace and in media. What do you think uh, when you look at the long list of, and I was looking at the long list of toys that have been inducted, and it's funny because sometimes the order of them seems Strange, like I, I would have thought maybe, um, you know, playing cards would have gone in before Atari, right? But how does that work? How does that work? I guess they're nominated, right? They are nominated. So every year we take nominations. Uh, your listeners can nominate right now on our website, museumofplay.org, because we are already taking nominations for next November's induction into the Hall of Fame. This year we had nominations for 325 different toys. Wow. People sometimes start up sort of grassroots campaigns to really fill our ballot box with votes for their favorite toy what um what are some of the ones that um when you look at at, at the at the past some of the ones i found fascinating were the ones that were that were so iconic that you would think they would have been part of you know the class the, the, the initial class the teddy bear for instance right that was that was but, but you also picked ones that that don't strike people as toys like sand or the blanket right. you know these are quintessential toy things but we don't think of them as toys That first started for us in 2005 when we inducted the cardboard box. Wow. And that year I went to Toy Fair, the big trade show that happens in New York City. And I thought, you know, these people are going to burn me in effigy because here we are promoting cardboard boxes. They spend their lifetimes and their livelihoods devoted to creating manufactured toys. 
And what I found was even at that trade show, people came up to us and said, oh, I remember when the neighbors got a refrigerator and that box was the best thing all summer long in our backyard. Those kinds of creative play, open-ended play are so wonderful to have an opportunity to celebrate and promote. Yeah, it's just the whole notion that we play with what's available, right? It is. And that's one of the other things that we try to be mindful of is that kids mash up toys together. What manufacturers think is going to be the official, quote, way to play with toys is not how kids do it. Uh, Barbie can be a friend with Yoda or have totally out of proportion pets or things like that. So it is something that kids put together in their heads and in their lives that is hard for me as a curator to capture. But what we do here with the more than half a million items in the Strong Museum's collection is really document the tools that kids and grownups use for play. Yeah, my Star Wars action figures all played hockey against my tabletop hockey players back in the day. Of course, that's that's the way kids are. They don't have those boundaries, right? It's not... right. And what I would love, uh, it probably didn't happen back then, is now since all of us walk around with really good cameras in our hands, in our pockets, in our purses, that parents today could capture that kind of play and share it with us here at the museum, where my frugal parents who made a roll of film last half a year never (laughs) documented those kinds of impromptu fun that happens in homes yeah, there wasn't much of that, was there? I, I guess a kid playing with a toy was not considered to be a, a photographic moment back in the day. It was more the family portrait or the or the vacation, right? That was the uh, right, right. That was and there was, was no Instagram or or Facebook to share it on. True. I noticed that one of my favorite childhood toys isn't in there yet. Nerf. Because Nerf was revolutionary when it came out. I mean, most kids couldn't lob a football, right? They were too big, too heavy, and then, yet Nerf came along, and all of a sudden the whole world opened up. It did. And Nerf was a fourth time finalist this year. So it has obviously what it takes to get into the Hall of Fame. It's got longevity. It's got icon status. Everyone can recognize it. And third, as you really point out, it has great play value. Any other ones that are sort of on the cusp of the uh, the Susan Lucci, so to speak, of the uh, <laughs> of the of the toy of the toy Hall of Fame induction? You know, Nerf was the one uh, that didn't get selected this year that's been a finalist the most times. For a long while, it was the Magic 8-Ball. And we kept having a running joke of Magic 8-Ball, are you going to get in next year? And asking it that question. (laughs) That's a good one. Um, So if people are interested in submitting a suggestion, they can go to your website, obviously. And then then how does it work? What are the criteria for for what you select each, each year? So last year, we had about 2,500 nominations. The year before that, I think when people were under lockdown restrictions and had way more screen and keyboard time than they should have, we heard from more than 40,000 people. Wow, that's a lot of nominations. It was. And since I tabulate those manually, I kind of thought my eyeballs were going to drop out as I worked on my Excel spreadsheet. You tabulate those those manually? Yes, because... We basically allow free entry. We let you type in whatever you want. And if you misspell something or you call it trucks by Tonka instead of Tonka trucks, I've got to make sure that I know that both of those are actually the same thing. So I guess hats off this year to uh, Masters of the Universe, The Top, and uh, and Lightbright. So those were some great selections. Uh, Again, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure being with you. Well, we often talk of the battlefield victories and losses and how they shape a war. But further from the front lines, oftentimes we're seeing it in Ukraine right now, a whole other army can often help sway the outcome of the fight. It's volunteers. It's those who fill the voids, those who fill the needs of a country at war. Um, So in this case, Halifax, during the Second World War, which had been a city of about 80,000 people in 1939, suddenly became the epicenter of the war effort in this country. As host to the soldiers, sailors, and airmen of an entire nation, Halifax faced a serious problem. 
Its normal living and entertainment facilities were designed for approximately 70,000 persons. And during the war, this population had almost doubled. But Haligonians are, first of all, hospitable people, and secondly, resourceful people. And throughout the city, there soon blossomed a multitude of entertainment centers, clubs, and hostels for all nationalities and services. Their sole purpose was to supply entertainment and living quarters for visiting servicemen. Sole purpose, but it was an incredibly important uh, service that was being provided by all these volunteers, this army of volunteers, women mainly in Halifax, who banded together often informally to make sure the city could cope as its population swelled. Their contribution, of course, went all but unrecognized at the time, even afterwards, as women uh, after the war drifted back into different roles. But a new book called The Volunteers looks to honor the many whose work during that war period provided stability and comfort from food to shelter to clothing to social events and everything in between that really provided um, a home base for Canada's war, war effort. Leslie Lowe is the author of The Volunteers, How Halifax Women Won the Second World War. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. So tell me, tell me about your interest in what is a an untold story, uh, or at least a not oft told story. Yeah, well, it really is a not oft told story, the story of women volunteers during the Second World War. And my interest came because, uh, well, it came because I actually didn't know very much about my grandparents um, during the Second World War, and specifically my grandmother, her role. So a lot of my book is focused on North End Halifax and, and downtown Halifax, and that's where my grandmother lived and worked during the Second World War. And I had started hearing stories about women who had done a significant amount of volunteering. And it really struck me that I didn't know anything about her, but also that I had never asked her whether she had volunteered. And it struck me that it sort of played into this, this problem we have when it comes to women's contributions is that the contributions weren't really recognized at the time when, if it was just, you know, civilian volunteers doing the things civilian volunteers did. And so they weren't tracked very well and they weren't memorialized afterward. And I realized that I was kind of playing into that because I was just assuming, oh, she had nothing to do with it. She must, you know, not be part of it. So I started looking into that. Because we do hear so often, of course, about the battlefields. We know that part of it. We often hear about how women filled the void in factories and so on in the jobs vacated or at least left behind by men who went to war. But we don't often hear about the work that women did to, and, and you point this out uh, quite poignantly, that Halifax was entirely ill-prepared to have that many mm -hmm. people arrive in the city. And it really became Canada's front lines, right? Yeah, it really did. So what essentially happened was um, at the start of the war uh, in September 39, the federal government you know, Halifax didn't ask to play this role, but the, the federal government decided that Halifax would be the launching point for the war for all Canadian service members. And so that meant about half a million service members passed through Halifax over the course of the war. Those half a million service members were not really even the full picture because many of them brought their families with them. There were also war workers, there were diplomats, there was all manner of, of people who were involved with the business of the war, for lack of a better term, and they all ended up in Halifax. And, you know, I found six women volunteers when I was researching this book, and they all talked about how small the city was before the war hit and how amazing it was when the war hit, but then how truly taxing it was that there were so many, so many people here. So uh, women in it there, and, and you said this happened organically, they simply went about filling the void that had been, or filling the need that was suddenly there mm -hmm. with this many people and that few services. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that is really how it happened. So there were a number of service organizations that stepped up, the St. John's Ambulance and, and Red Cross and the Junior League. But a lot of the work was done just by women. The way I characterize it in the book is, is that, you know, they were just nipping in these moments of volunteerism kind of in the course of their, of their day. Um, and so some of these women worked, many worked in the home, not outside the home. And so it was a matter of, you know, 
in the 10 minutes you had between doing one task and doing another task, you might sit down and, and knit a portion of a mitten, you know, and by the end of the day, you might have a, a mitten knit. And so you would donate that. One woman would ask another woman, oh, can you help me to, you know, I'm going to make dinner for five service members on Sunday. Can you help me do this? And so women would get together that way. And and it really added up to a significant, significant portion of help. Yeah, you mentioned at one point that women in Halifax provided some 52 million hot meals. I mean, that is a lot of, yeah. that is a lot of, it's funny because we've been talking obviously this year about the war in Ukraine and how, and it's different, mm. but but how people there simply recognized the need and went about filling it. And it feels yeah. like it was similar here, that that there was a need, but if the need goes unmet, it has an impact, doesn't it? That's right. And that was, you know, that was a big point of contention during the war because the municipality and and individuals certainly asked the federal government to step in at different stages. But the federal government was really clear that its role was not keeping Halifax afloat. The federal government's role was funding the war, um, war preparedness and, and battle. But what they had sort of inflicted on Halifax really made the city start to falter in a number of different ways. So I talk about, you know, there were epidemics of diphtheria and meningitis in the city. There was severe overcrowding. There was significant homelessness. So Halifax, along with, I know many other cities in Canada are dealing with a housing crisis right now. And that was, you know, certainly something happening during the war. There were some 600 to 800 service members every night who were without places to sleep. So, you know, there were, you know, you might go to a school gymnasium and find a couple hundred service members sleeping on, on the floor of the gym. A lot of women wanted to support the war effort, but I think they also were really touched by the need that was severely impacting their community and their city. One of the things about the book I found really interesting is how the volunteerism spread right through cultures and religions that were in the city at the time. Yeah, that's definitely true. So um, individual religious institutions all had dances and then also in communities, too, because while there was not legal segregation in Halifax or Nova Scotia at the time, there was a kind of de facto segregation. So if you were a white service member, you could go to a dance anywhere. If you were a black service member, you couldn't. And so there were individual organizations, probably too strong a word, but like community centers or other places like that that sprung up that would provide for, for example, Black service members where they would have dances and dinners. The Jewish community really stepped up. The Greek community really stepped up. And that that was so important, not only because it was, you know, closing in some of the gaps in terms of the help that people needed, but it also allowed people to feel that they were, you know, supported in a way that they were familiar being supported. And, and that was such a big thing about the work that women did broadly, because a lot of the work was not, it wasn't anything extraordinary. It was making somebody a cup of tea or, you know, sewing a button on somebody's shirt or, or doing small things. But if you're a 19 year old from Saskatoon, who's being shipped across the country and, and off to the war in Europe, I think that makes a really big difference in your life. Yeah, I, I think it would have filled, uh, if it had, again, if it hadn't been there, imagine. The magazine aspect of this was an interesting one. The magazine yeah. repository, I think it was called. Yeah, the Central Magazine Exchange. Yeah. Right. So there were there are a few different organizations that um, that shipped out reading materials to um, mostly to outposts and to ships that were leaving. But people would come and drop off their used magazines. And then there was this small army of women who would bundle all the magazines up and and then service members could come and pick up loads of them for their ship or for an outpost. They would sometimes deliver them. And that was really, really important because you know, hours and hours and hours at sea, the men needed something to keep their spirits up and to keep them occupied. And that that filled a big role. Did you, um, and of course, many of these women had their loved ones fighting, right? And they, they weren't, uh, this, yeah. they were involved in the war effort as well. What, um, how should we remember them then? Uh, it, it seems like after the war, they kind of went back to their lives and this whole part of their effort in all this was, was sort of uh, forgotten about to some extent. How do you think they should be remembered? Yeah, it really was forgotten. And that's, that was quite an interesting part of my research, because I could, 
you know, I spent quite a bit of time at Library and Archives Canada and also the Nova Scotia Archives and the Halifax Municipal Archives. And you can see in each of those archives in the material that the war ended, but we knew the war was ending. It wasn't just, you know, one day the war was raging and the next day the war was over. There was some sense that it was coming to an end. And so along with that, there were a lot of preparations for the memorialization of the contributions that Canadians had made to the war effort. And what we saw was, or what I saw was, you know, a lot of memos going back and forth about where cenotaphs would go. And this, at the time, there was this um, push toward memorial gardens rather than cenotaph type edifices. A lot of communications about this, but almost no communication about the need to recognize the role of women and particularly Halifax women as we remembered the war. And so I think what happened was, you know, the war ended people were jubilant. And then I think women kept working really in Halifax because repatriation took a very, very long time. Um, It wasn't just that, you know, (laughs) the beginning of May came and then everybody was home. It took, it took years for everybody to come home and everything to kind of close up. So a lot of the work women did continued well past the war. And then when it stopped, the women kind of just faded back into their lives. You know, they had been, as I said, a lot of them had been doing this work kind of in informal fashions. And so it wasn't that odd to just, you know, let go of one small part of your life and then another small part of your life that was volunteering. And what essentially happened was the women really didn't, uh, they really didn't see value in the work they had done. Um, And they certainly weren't told there was value in the work they had done. And so it was largely forgotten. Did you ever find out what happened with your grandmother, what she had done those years? Did you find the answers to those questions (laughs) at long last? I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. I mean, I know she attended some dances, but in terms of, you know, personal archival material, zip, she passed. So I could never ask her. And so I write quite about that, quite a bit about that in the book, how, you know, we have these resources around us and we need to make sure that we collect that information. But even I have to say, even the women that the volunteers that I did get in contact with and interviewed, every one of them echoed that notion that, yeah, oh, I didn't do very much. You know, they're like, no, it was no big deal. Everybody did it. And I think that was certainly true. It was it was very ubiquitous in Halifax. I think everybody pitched in. But I think the women really sold themselves short when they talked about how their contributions didn't matter. Leslie Lowe, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Well, today is Louis Riel Day. Um, not every, I mean, across the country, in Manitoba, they have a different one. It's in February, which can be sometimes um, a little bit confusing. But today is indeed Louis Riel Day. Day. It was in 1885 on this day, November 16th, that he was executed. I think a lot of us know the name. Um, 137 years later, he's really, his legacy as a champion of the Métis people. Uh, and Métis rights is very much carved into our national history. But it, in some ways, it has come at, an expense, at the expense of a better understanding of the history of his people in some ways. So it was to further our understanding of that history that Riel's great-grandniece, Jean Taillé, an accomplished, accomplished Indigenous rights lawyer in her own right, published a book a few years ago called The Northwest is Our Mother, the Story of Louis Riel's People, the Métis Nation. And on this Louis Riel Day, uh, we thought, what better person to speak to about the meaning of the day and other issues that she's been writing about of late as well um, than Jean Taillé herself, who's a senior counsel with Pape Salter Taillé in uh, Vancouver. She specializes, as I mentioned, in Indigenous rights law, and uh, she is Louis Riel's great-grandniece. Thanks so much for your time tonight. It's a pleasure to be with you, Ben. What does the what must this day mean to the family? Uh, I, I heard a great interview you gave where you described Louis Riel as like a comet, right? Something that just sort of soars above history in some ways. And and I think you've tried over the years to address some of the gaps that that has left in our understanding of Métis history and Métis culture. Yeah, you know, he it's it's funny, you know, that Métis history is you know two hundred plus years, and he's really only seventeen years of that. And yet he carved a place in Canadian history that's pretty extraordinary. 
so he, I, I think of him as this just incredibly magnetic person. He must have been. He stood in Winnipeg when it was 40 below and talked for two hours and people would actually listen. <laughs> for that is remarkable. You've got to be good to do that. You know? <laughs> yeah. The book, the book that you put together was fascinating because I remember you, you speaking about you would bring sort of documents, uh, Louis Riel, associated documents to show and tell when you were in primary school. It's true. We did. My brothers and I all did. We had a, a, a batch of them that my dad took when when there's a house in St. Boniface or St. Gatel called Riel House, which is a little bit misleading because it makes it seem like it's Louis Riel's house. But it was actually my great grandfather's house. And my great grandfather was Louis's little brother. And right. so it's actually Joseph Riel's house. And when my great aunt Yvonne got too old to be living in it. The My uncle Roger, I think they sold it to um, the federal government for a dollar with the understanding that it was going to be made into a museum, which it is. And they cleaned out all their stuff. And in the trunk, in the attic, there was a trunk full of papers. And my dad grabbed a handful of them. And I think some of my other uncles did too. So we had those papers. They weren't all written by Louis Riel, but some of them were. And um, we just we were pretty callous with them. I think we we knew they were important and we knew we should be proud of having these things and that it was something to show and tell about. But I don't think we really had a sense of the real historical significance of, you know, taking Louis Real papers to show and tell in grade four. I don't, I don't think we got that at all. In fact, my brother John says that his teacher tried to stop him or stopped him from actually putting thumbtacks through them to put them up right. on the board. You know? <laughs> so with all that in mind, I guess it must be, I, I don't know how to put this question exactly, but it's both in some ways we associate so much of what we understand, you know, as, as uh, the history of the Métis through that one story. And, and, and you're right. He, mm-hmm. He's 17 years in a much longer and much more complicated and fascinating story that's so intertwined in Canada's story. It's totally intertwined. I mean, Louis Riel is responsible for negotiating two-thirds of what we now call Canada into the Canadian Confederation. So that's all of northern Quebec, all of northern Ontario, all of the Prairie Provinces, the Northwest Territories, the Yukon, all of that came in with his negotiations in 1870, in Manitoba, 1869 and 1870. So he is a big part of Canadian history. There's no question about it. And the problem is that, you know, you've got, he was young, right? That's the other thing about it. He's 24 and 25 through that whole period in Manitoba when he was doing this. And the way I sort of think about it is this one young guy, it's almost like he's a, a computer hacker or somebody who succeeded in jamming the plans of Canada and Great Britain. And they're outraged. Who is this upstart? Who is this person who can stop us from doing what we want to do? Uh, and, and I think a lot of it is it, it's, it, it, that they've never heard of him. They don't know who he is and that he's Métis. There's no small amount of prejudice <laughs> going on. Right in all of this stuff, but that's what happened. And he was successful in partly successful, I'd say in getting um, some of the terms that they were looking for. They were, they were only looking to negotiate the terms on which the West came into Canada, not, not to not do it, but, but they thought that they should be able to negotiate um, like Canada did with all the other provinces. But the reason Canada didn't do it with the West was because it was most, I would say 98 or 99% of the people were Indigenous and the government didn't think they had to stoop to negotiate with those kind of people. So there's imagine, a lot of that going uh, yeah. on. Yeah. Imagine if they had. Imagine if they had. If we're, well, we you know today. what? Louis Riel's government was much more... Um, what we would today call democratic than the government that um, Sir Johnny MacDonald plunked in place, which was kind of a carpetbagger um, government uh, where the people had basically no say in anything that was going on. It was all decided by Ottawa. It was all the things they didn't want. That's what they did. And it was completely um, English run for the most part. Uh, they succeeded in getting um, a lot. There was a lot of animosity there's a, a, play, a thing called the Orange Lodge that was basically running Canada back in those days. And there were 
an avowedly like flat out white supremacist. They wanted to people the West with um, white Protestant uh, Anglo-Saxons, and they were they weren't shy about saying that they wanted to eradicate the French, eradicate the the Roman Catholics and get rid of the Métis and plunk all the Indians into the little tiny backwater reserves. That was their plan. And to a large part, you have to say they were successful because right after Riel negotiated the Manitoba Act, MacDonald sent the troops in. They instituted a reign of terror that even the New York Times ran as a headline in 1871. So, you know, I would guess today that probably 90% of the people who read the New York Times don't know where Winnipeg is, even today. Yeah. yeah, and so if they're running a headline about what's going on in Winnipeg in 1871, that means it was big news, and it means everybody knew about it. They were the soldiers, uh, McDonald called them, were raping, gang-raping girls. They were burning down houses. They were beating people. They murdered people. Um, anybody they could find who was Métis, they beat up anybody they could find who was Catholic, anybody who disagreed with them. It was a, it was a reign. The newspapers called it a reign of terror within six weeks of the troops arriving, and it lasted for two and a half years. And um, McDonald did absolutely nothing to curb it. In fact, I think he tacitly liked it. Wow. Um you know, this is the anniversary of, of Louis Riel's execution, uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and I guess we, we, we look back now, uh, 137 years later. Do you feel like we've we've come a distance in 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 recognizing uh, Métis culture, the Métis nation, uh, since since those? I mean, oh, yeah. after the yeah yeah, absolutely. There's no question that we're moving um, forward with respect to Indigenous peoples all the way down the line. Um, now, are we anywhere near where, you know, I think we should be? No. But are we a long way from where we were 50 years ago? Absolutely. Lots and lots and lots have changed since then. So I think there's a, a, a good momentum going on right now. But it's a little bit, you know, my Uncle Roger used to say it's sort of like, you know, comes in waves. You get sort of a, a wave and then you get a back undertow. And you sort of go backwards a little bit and then you go forwards again and you go backwards again. But you never go right back to where you were back, say, in 1870, right? We're not we're not going back there. We're not even going back to the 50s and 60s. So there will be an undertow from time to time where we'll take a few, you know, we take five steps forward and two back and five more steps forward and two more back. But we, there is, you know, to quote um, Martin Luther King, the arc of justice does the arc, the arc bends towards justice, and I think that's what I see right now. So it is getting better, and today is one of those days. I mean, it's, it's not a celebration day. It's kind of a something like memorial, you know, or like a remembrance day yeah. for the Métis. And we have celebrated it. I was just reading some stuff this afternoon that um, the Union Nationale Métis Saint-Joseph has been meeting every day on this, every year, on this day, since Riel was hanged in 1885, they've never missed a year, and they they got and I got pictures from like 1911, <laughs> as they gather in various places all across um, the Métis Nation from basically Ontario West somewhere. Jean Taillé is with us this half hour. It is Louis Riel Day. She is Louis Riel's great-grandniece. We've been talking about the significance of the day. She's also written a book called The Northwest is Our Mother, the story of Louis Riel's people, the Métis Nation. Um, she's also written an op-ed uh, recently in the Globe and Mail, which was very interesting. It comes on the heels of a report that she wrote for the University of Saskatchewan about a case of suspected Indigenous identity fraud. And it was a really fascinating um, op-ed, Jean. It's actually why I think I contacted you in the first place after reading it, um, because it's been a really, it's been a topic that's been talked about a lot, but it's hard to, hard to figure out. It's, it, it's the most, what you wrote was the most comprehensive thing I'd seen about it, or at least the most engaging. Um, why did you feel it was time to write about this issue? Um, in a national paper? 
Well, uh, first of all, I mean, I wrote the report, and the report mm-hmm. was getting a lot of pickup um, all across the country. And so the national paper came to me and said, would I do a, a, right. a very short, short, short? And it really is, because the report's 80-some-odd pages long. So, you know, um, 750 or 1,200 words or whatever it is is definitely um, a... Uh, Cold notes version of the, yeah, a snippet the, of it. Yeah, uh, if people know what Cole's notes are anymore, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, of a certain age. I do, certainly. Uh, okay. But this was prompted by a case at the University of Saskatchewan. Uh, yeah. Carrie Barassa was the, was, the, was the professor's name who claimed Indigenous heritage. Uh, it was found that she didn't. And, and you thought this, was, this is a far more serious issue than perhaps, because we use a word called pretendian, which you found a bit flip. Yeah, I think it's, it's too cute. Um, I, I get it. I mean, it's clever. It's witty. Um, to put pretend and Indian together and come up with pretendian. But the problem for me is that pretend makes it sound like it's a game. And it also, you know, that's the kids play it pretending. And so it seems harmless when you call it um, a word like that. So that's my problem with it is I don't think it captures the gravity of the situation at all. So the report came uh, because I was engaged to investigate, do an employment investigation of Dr. Barasa, but then she resigned. But I had already been working for six months or seven months on the investigation, and I'd interviewed 60 people and, you know, done a lot of reading and thinking about it. So the university turned around and said, you know, could you just write it um, in a generic way? Tell us about the problem and all Mm -hmm. the research you've done and set it all out for us and just don't don't deal with individuals anymore. And I thought that was a really good idea because it allowed me to, you know, these um, exposés that are out in the press have a little bit of a salacious quality to them. And uh, so I thought it would be, it was a very nice opportunity to have a serious um, ability to write about this without zoning in on any particular person. Uh, And I thought that was, that's a much more helpful way to, um, start people thinking about this. So how should we tackle it? <laughs> um, well, first of all, I, I think that it should be recognized that it's not a game, that people picking up another identity uh, that they really have no right to do, that it is impersonation and it's theft. Um, and so it also, I guess... So the way to the way to tackle it, I think, first all of all, is to recognize that this is happening, and the seriousness of this comes. You know, if it was just the the ones who are being exposed right now, the the famous, you know, the Joseph Boydens and the Michelle Latimers and the Carrie Barassas and lately Dr. Mary Ellen Terpelafond, if if it was just the odd singular person like that, I don't think it would be such a serious thing. I mean, each one of those causes a lot of harm, but. It's not so serious. The problem is we're talking about tens of thousands of people, and I am not exaggerating. In fact, I might be underestimating. It might actually be in the hundreds of thousands by now. So of people who are suddenly, and this is all like since about 2002, really, um, or 2000, yeah, 2002 or 2003. So you're talking about in the last... um, 20 years. 20 years, yeah. Tens of thousands, if not 100,000 plus people have suddenly decided to identify as Indigenous. And most of them are doing it on the flimsiest of ideas. You know, the um, they go back and mine the archives and find that they have an ever-so-great Indian grandmother in 1605. Well, that's ludicrous that they by the way that they haven't known about for 400 years right and so and then they they find this little gem and they suddenly say well i get to call myself indigenous and you and you just like i just shake my head and say i mean you could go back and find anybody in your family tree you could find actually a friend of mine did a dna thing and it said that um i can't remember um the, anyway, she, the, the, you can find like you know an ancient Greek ancestor or something like that. It doesn't make you Greek. It doesn't right. make you anything. Um, and yeah. other people are doing DNA tests, right? And they come back, and the DNA test says you've got five percent um, Native American ancestry. And the thing about that is, people don't understand the DNA test. They're doing most of them are doing 
mitochondrial, which is your mother's, so it's one woman out of each generation. So your mother's, 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 they just go back in that way. So it's only following that one person all the way down the line. So if it comes back and says you've got 10% Native American ancestry, that's actually 10% of less than 1% of less than 1% of your ancestral DNA. But they don't tell you that, right? No. So, but that's so. And but people will literally, like Joseph Boyden says, "Well, I've got Native American DNA," and but I, it's just it's ludicrous. So these kinds of or people who have flimsy stories, like you know, my grandfather always said that there was some Native in us, but you don't right. go, you know, there's nothing there. You're you're doing what Adam Godry calls communing with the dead. If you're going back that far, there's nothing, there's no live people around you. There's no people who are, you're not part of anything real. You're just part of some antique, historical, um, you know, dust gathering genealogical fact. And it should stay there and you can't pump it up and create it into something that gives you a viable Indigenous identity today. It's just a fantasy it's a complete G- fantasy. G- I have to leave it there. I, I, okay. I, I would like love to have you back, and we'll talk further about this. It's been, okay. it's been fa- fascinating. Thank you so much for your time tonight. You're welcome. Okay, bye-bye. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.